turn with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, so we will continue our look through this book. Today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20, and what it means to have a shipwrecked faith, as Paul uses that language here in the text. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would guide us through it. Um, We are weak when it comes to seeing our own sin and following your word. We need help from you. We need the strength you give. And so we pray that you would give us that this morning in extra portion as we come to your word, as we examine it, as we see what it has to say to us as individuals, as a church, and we pray that you would show us yourself here, our risen Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, of course, as I was going through this text and I saw the word there, shipwrecked, and um, made me think about some famous shipwrecks, and I read about some different things there. And, of course, the most famous shipwreck that we've probably all heard of is the sinking of the Titanic, you're all familiar with that. That's you know happened in the early early 20th century, uh, killed over a thousand people. Uh, pretty devastating thing. Remember that when the Titanic was launched, it was said to be unsinkable, which we make much of, but it wasn't really uncommon for folks to think that about that type of ship in that day. The common idea was this type of ship is unsinkable. We have. The engineers of the day thought we have reached a pinnacle in engineering and no longer will we have shipwrecks. Um, so, they had, they, again, they thought that they were just building these unsinkable ships, and so then Titanic and other ships like them had crews that weren't really trained for emergencies. They weren't outfitted with very many lifeboats um, compared to the amount of life that was going to be on board that boat in particular. I mean, I think it even showed that after they hit the iceberg, some of the engineers kind of brushed it off. One of the engineers is quoted as saying, oh, we should just kind of slowly go through this. It'll be fine. And they couldn't believe that a couple hours later the Titanic was just about to sink, right? Because we all know the rest of the story. It did sink. It was a very sad story about the damage that pride and blindness to one's own faults can do. Paul is dealing with very similar struggles here in this text that we're going to look at today, not only in his own life, and I think we see that as he writes throughout the New Testament, but also in the lives of the men that he discipled and in the churches that he was planting. Paul knew that we would easily begin to trust in ourselves rather than Christ because that is what is at the heart of the sin nature. What does the sin nature do to us from the beginning? It causes us to question God and at the same time elevate ourselves. When we do that, he tells us that our faith, like the Titanic, can become shipwrecked. When we reject the idea and the place of Jesus in our lives, we wreck our faith and many other people's of faith and even their lives and our life along with it. Like the Titanic, we may see ourselves as impervious to failure. 
And if that is so, we are in more danger than one is who on than one who is on guard and who is prepared. So today we're going to consider, as we consider this text, I want to look at the three things that Paul believed that he stated there at the beginning concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and how it helps us to grow in our own faith uh, and to show Christ to a dying world. So the three points we're going to look at is he has given us strength, he has judged us faithful, and he has appointed us to serve. So with that, let's look at the text together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 12 or 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first, let's look at the idea that he has given us strength. And so Paul in verse 12, he read that for us again, he states these things that he's believing according to Jesus Christ. I think him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He immediately lets us know, the apostle does, where his strength is derived from. And then he spells this out in the following verses. He reminds us who he was. What does the text say? He was formerly formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He reminds us of this first. Why would he do that? Well, again, so that he can establish his weakness over against Christ's strength. Strength is defined against weakness. If everyone can lift a thousand pounds, then the person who can lift a thousand pounds isn't very strong. But we know that to be different, right? That's like the deadlift world record is a thousand pounds. That person is very strong. All right, so strength is defined against weakness. Paul looks at his former life as a weakness, therefore Christ is his strength. Some may see those positions that Paul has listed as strong ones, right? Uh, A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the church, powerful against men, 
able to control them by what he says, by what he does. He has power over people. But Paul has now realized that they are actually positions of weakness. And he goes on to explain that he received mercy because he acted in unbelief. Again, we have discussed this many times. The unbeliever doesn't know the difference between right and wrong in the truest sense, like in in what they really are, but they are still held accountable to the law. But Paul wasn't. Why wasn't he held accountable for being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent? The same reason that we in Christ are not held accountable for our sins because Jesus was for us. He took our sins and he nailed them to the cross. His sin was his weakness, but in Christ he is strong. And look at verse 16 with me. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so what is he saying? This is a testimony, again, not to Paul's greatness. We don't talk about our weaknesses in our former lives in order to give testimony to our own greatness. We do that in order to give testimony to the glory of Christ, to show his patience with us. His glory, his mercy is on display, not our ability to somehow kick the habit and be the good guy now. All right? It's, it's the patience of Jesus, his long-suffering, his abounding mercy, his covenantal love for a lost people that he came to save. So if he is our strength, then what does that mean for us? What can we do with this information as Christians who are seeking Jesus as our strength and who realize that our sin has been nailed to the cross And we have it no more. Well, it means that we're free to fail. Does it not? We are free to be called a work in progress. Paul was free to call himself the foremost of sinners. And that not be held against him because of what Jesus Christ did for him. We are free to fail. And again, that's not me saying that we have license to sin. Sin is not okay, but when we sin, it's okay. If Christ is our strength, we need not be strong. Isn't that incredible? He is strong for us. And again, we aren't laying down. This isn't some you know, um, modern idea of letting go and letting God, anything like that. But we are acknowledging our inability to please Him outside of the faith and the gifts that He has given to us. And so look at verse 18 then. What is He charging Timothy with because of this? I charge This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare... He talks about these prophecies that were made about Timothy. We don't really know what these are. 
They're not in Scripture. There were New Testament prophets. We don't hear a whole lot about them, and they did prophesy in those times. But it likely had to do with Timothy's place in the ministry and what he was going to be doing. And so what is this warfare that he should be doing? I mean, it's obviously a figure of speech. Paul isn't calling Timothy to go out into actual warfare with a suit of armor on or whatever they they had in those days. But he is asking him to go to war against the two major enemies of the Christian faith. And what are they? Sin and death. The things that Jesus came to deliver us from, that he has ultimately given us victory over, but yet we daily forget that he has done so. So these enemies would seek to destroy the church from within. They're attacking the church in Ephesus. Remember we talked about that, that Paul was sending Timothy to deal with the church in Ephesus because of this idea. And he's asking Timothy to wage warfare against this. He's calling him to wage war against any inclination other than the gospel of Jesus Christ that might seek to worm its way into Timothy's mind and our own minds and seek to replace the gospel with idols. It can happen to us, so we have to be careful. We don't need to see this as something that was just going on in the first century and not today. Anything that would attempt to inform us of our own abilities over and against Christ's is the enemy. Anything that would seek to replace his strength with our own is the enemy. This is what we wage warfare against. For the Ephesians, what was it? We talked about it. It was some sort of secret knowledge that was going to lead them to a greater salvation. For us, it isn't much different, really. Whatever it might look like in our life, anything that we look at and say, if I just had that, then I would be complete. That thing is likely competing for a place in our heart with the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever would convince you to say, now I've really finally arrived spiritually. That thing you should hunt down and kill. Because it is not the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can all think of a lot of things that would do this. I mean, money, possessions, how well our kids behave, how smart they are, the fact that we aren't as bad as other people. I like to do that, right? You see someone not doing what they should, and you're like, whew, could be a lot worse, I guess. Well, we all like to do that because all of a sudden I have made that person's righteousness the gospel, and I'm better than that, so what am I doing? Saving myself. That's not the goal. Jesus Christ is the goal. He is our righteousness. Is it bad? Is it bad on me? I mean, are these things bad? Is it bad if our kids are smart? Or if we're, is it bad that we think about what separates us from the rest of the world? Absolutely not. We're not saying those things are bad. But anything that we hold up and say, this is my righteousness, this is my strength, anything that we give the glory other than our Lord Jesus is wrong and is bad, and we need to deal with it in that way. And so secondly, he has judged us faithful. So what does he mean when Paul, when Paul says, 
that he has given me strength because he has judged me faithful. He believes that Jesus has judged him faithful. Well, when we say that person is faithful, we aren't necessarily making a spiritual assessment of that person, you know, necessarily. We're saying that person is able to be trusted. That person, when I give them a task, they will do that task. They are faithful to do that. You know, when we went to a ball game on Monday and someone gets up to bat, I'm thinking, you know, that person's always faithful to get a single. I was talking about Joey Votto from the Reds, so it wasn't a good thing. But he is always faithful to hit a single. Uh, he's, that's just what he does. He's a really good ball player, and I hate that he's not on our team. But anyway, Paul is saying that Jesus judged him to be faithful or to be able to complete the mission that was put out before him. Now, does this go against what we just said? Is Paul all of a sudden relying on his own abilities to complete the mission? Is Jesus looking at Paul's abilities and saying, yep, he's a good one. He's going to go out and do that. That's why I picked him. Well, Jesus gives us a couple of parables on this idea. Luke 16 and Matthew 25, if you want to go back and look at those. Luke 16 and Matthew 25, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase them. But you've heard these parables before. This is the idea that the master in the story has stewards, and he puts these stewards in charge of something of his, usually some sort of wealth. And in the, in the story, there are those who do something with that wealth, and then there are those who don't. And the ones that do something with that wealth and go make wealth with it, what does he call them? Faithful. He calls them faithful to the task that they were doing. Are they faithful because they took their own wealth and gave it back to the master. No. They're faithful because they took what the master gave them and used it faithfully. So when Paul is judged faithful, whose wealth, whose gifts is he using? He's using the wealth of the one who has judged him faithful, Jesus Christ. When I read this, it reminded me of a, of a hymn written by a man named Joseph Hart. And one of the stanzas says this. We've sang it in here before. It's probably one of my favorite hymns. It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners, Jesus came to call. And so what is it saying? Well, another verse says that he, he would have us be fit, that we, we dream of fitness. He says, nor of fitness fondly dream, but all the fitness that he requires, Jesus Christ, all the fitness that I dream of, I dream of having gifts to serve him, I dream of doing the mission, all the fitness that I would have, this... He gives you, is what the song says. All the fitness that Jesus requires of me, all the good that he requires of me, all the service that he requires of me, he gives to me that I might serve him with it. He has judged us faithful. Why? Because he is faithful. Each of us have been given a measure of gifts and wealth from the Lord Jesus 
For some it may be material wealth, prestige, others it's abilities to do certain things, to serve. Whatever it is, we use it to serve him and his church. And when we do so, we aren't pointing to ourselves, because how could we? How could we point to ourselves with anything that we've done for him and through him and say, look at me, look how awesome I am. Do the stewards in the parable point at themselves at, at all and say, look at all my money. They couldn't. It's not their money. They could do that, but they would be liars. It's not their money. They have no claim over it. They're merely using it to bring honor and wealth back to their master. And so, brothers and sisters, we will be judged faithful when we're doing that, using whatever means he has given us, whatever it is, no matter how big or how small it is, for the glory of God to see his kingdom come to this earth. So let me encourage you with that. And then lastly, he has appointed us to service. Paul says that he has judged him faithful, appointing me to service. If you think about this, and we just read Paul's rap sheet, and in several several of uh, the letters that he sent out, he talks about his former life and what and what that was like and the things that he did. And so when we consider that, it's pretty incredible that the Lord Jesus would call him to service, is it not? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God in some capacity. Therefore, none of us deserves his presence in our life. But look at Paul. He was arresting Christians and having them thrown in prison and even having them killed. But he is judged faithful and he was appointed to service. Why is that? Well, because in Christ we are given mercy. In Christ all things are made new, including us. So first we had to make sure that we understand Paul isn't talking about a particular type of people that are being called to serve or a particular task that, he's, that they're being called to. He's, his service was as an apostle, right? We've talked about the office of apostle and what that means. It's a very rare office and a closed office. There aren't currently apostles walking around. So Paul's calling was very particular to that end. However, each of us are called, called to some sort of service according to the gifts that he has given us. All of us in Christ have been given some measure of his glory, some measure of his grace in order which to serve him with. He has appointed all of us to service. We've talked a little bit about the service that Timothy had been called to, to wage war, to wage the good warfare. And notice also that he is called to hold the faith and a good conscience. There in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. And so what does this mean? Holding the truth of the gospel. Holding on to the law that they are called to follow. Jesus summed this up really easily, right? Loving God and loving others. Called to recognize the truth from a lie. To recognize right from wrong. And then he tells us what have some done in relation to this calling, in relation to this charge that he has given. Well, some have rejected this and made a shipwreck of their faith. He says they've made a shipwreck. It's only found one other time in the scriptures, and it actually has to do with an actual shipwreck. So it's no tricky 
Greek word or anything like that. But Paul is using it as in a metaphorical sense. What does it make or mean to make a shipwreck of their faith? Well, you kind of get the idea of this ship that's just kind of sailing along. And now it's being bashed against the rocks. It's being sinking under the, the water against the rocks of whatever it is. In this case, maybe lawlessness, heresy. Because he gives us a couple of examples here. Note the seriousness that Paul uses to deal with the folks that he mentions. Verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I have handed over to Satan. What does it mean that he has done that? It's kind of serious sounding. Paul has essentially removed them from the church. He has removed them from the normal church there, wherever this is, probably in Ephesus. It doesn't mean that he took them and physically threw them out on the street or anything like that. But he has recognized publicly that these two are no longer a part of the church. Their confession has been judged false because of the things that they preach. You guys guys all remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where Jesus throws out seed among the soil, and we are the soil, and the word grows up in those different soils, and you kind of hear the different uh, interpretation there. So what's here? Well, the word was thrown out to these two, but it grew up among thorns. Maybe thorns of self-worth and self-righteousness, thorns of secret doctrines and greed, and it's choked out the true faith. There can be lots of things that can lead us to believe that we have somehow made it apart from Christ, that we are now unsinkable ships on the frozen seas of this pagan world. That's not the case. If we let ourselves get this way, we are in a dangerous, very, a very dangerous position. And so don't think for a moment that handed over to Satan is some sort of light hand slap. It doesn't sound like it. It's not. It means that rather than being handled with love by the Lord in the context of the church, you're now being handled by the accuser, the father of lies. Turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22. And I think this is a helpful text with this, with this passage. Luke 22, 31 through 34. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples before he was to be, uh, before he was be betrayed and, and uh, crucified. He says, Simon... Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Notice Peter's bravado here. I am ready to die. Was he really? We find out later in the story. You guys know. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied 
three times that you know me. Jesus says that Satan demanded to sift him like wheat. What is that? What does that mean? We don't do a lot of wheat sifting nowadays. We have machines that do that. They're called combines. Well, sifting wheat was a way to remove the chaff. You've all seen a piece of wheat that's wrapped in this paper-like stuff, and they would throw it up in the air, and the paper-like stuff would blow off, and then they would have the actual wheat that they would grind into flour or do whatever. And so the idea was to throw the wheat up in the air so that you would get a pure product, that all the bad stuff would be torn away, that you would have something good that was left. Right? Wouldn't we rather have that done by our Lord? rather than by the accuser that we've been turned over to. I think we get the idea here. The church, the Lord has given us the church in order to care for its believers, in order to care for the people inside of it, even those who are struggling, even those who may be listed as shipwrecked in their faith, like all of us have been, let's be honest. We would rather that be the Lord than one who would seek to destroy us. Does this happen? Absolutely. I think we can all point to someone, maybe even ourselves, that has literally had to go through fire in order to find faith. They have the scars in this life to prove it. But do we want that? I think this underscores an important, the importance of the membership in church because one purpose of the church, again, is to grow up believers Membership allows church leadership to oversee, hence the elders are called overseers a lot of times in Scripture. Paul has removed these two from membership because they are blasphemers, meaning they regularly teach untruth about Jesus. And because they are unrepentant, they are turned over to Satan. Why? What is the purpose of this? Not to punish them but in order that they might see their error and turn back to Jesus. That's the purpose of anything like this, any time. It's not to somehow throw them out, that, oh, now you're going to get it. No, it's uh, we want you back. We want you to come back. We want you to repent. And so that's the purpose here that Paul is calling upon. And I, I spent a while with this. I think it's important for us to note the seriousness of our call Inside the church, we are called to service of Christ and his church. And not, it's not just the people who are paid to do it. It's not just the pastors, but all of us. It's all of our calling to serve Jesus Christ, that we preach Jesus Christ in love, that we follow after his teachings, that the world might know, that, he, that, that we might know, and that, they, that he might be glorified before them. And so quickly in conclusion, let us in the church again remember that Jesus Christ is our strength. We rest completely on him and on his merit. How? Well, we come to this table every week and it reminds us of that. It reminds us that he died so we might live. And you heard me say this before. We don't find any elements up here at this table that represent our part in the story, that represent our strength. We see two elements that represent his body broken and his blood shed for us, nothing representing our own part in the story. He did it for us. 
We did nothing. He deserves all the glory. And lastly, since we have been judged faithful, then let us be faithful in his service that we have been called to. Let us love the Lord first and foremost in our lives, but then let us show the love of Jesus to a world by teaching them truth, by showing them what we do, by showing them how we are, that we might live lives that bring glory to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have judged us faithful, not according to our own merit, our own anything, but according to what you have done for us, according to what you have given us. You have appointed us to serve that we might bring glory to you, serving you with the gifts you have given us. And so, Lord, help us to do that, that the world might know, that the world might see you in all your glory, that they might repent and believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.